Today, I'm joined with Sean Kane. And Sean, you represent the Archdiocese of Baltimore. Is that right? That's correct. What is your position with them? My title is a vice chancellor, and I'm the executive director of the Department of Communications. I'm not Catholic. So can you tell me what it means to be a chancellor? There are two very distinct and different titles. The chancellor is a canonical position. Our current chancellor is holds degrees in civil and canonical law, and her job is basically to make sure that that the church's policies and practices are, are consistent with canon law. A vice chancellor is more of an honorary title. It was given to me by then Cardinal O'Brien prior to his elevation to a position in Rome. I've been here 15 years, uh, gone on 16 years, and my primary responsibilities are communications related. So I um, guide and advise the archbishop and the leadership here in terms of our communications responsibilities. And uh, part of that includes joining you for this podcast today. You'll notice throughout this that I might ask questions that are more specific because I would like to know more information because, of course, I'm not Catholic. So a lot of the terms doesn't doesn't ring for me. So I'm hoping that you don't mind if I ask for clarification. Yeah, no, I'm, I would much rather you do that. It's we're all still learning. So even those of us who are Catholic we sometimes need to brush up. So I'm <laughs> so advise anything I can. So recently, the Archdiocese of Baltimore, you guys released information about the Independent Review Board. Can you explain to me what that board is and how it was put in place? So the review board here in the Archdiocese dates back to 1993. It is comprised of mostly lay individuals in various from various backgrounds with expertise in various areas in clinical and legal and administrative roles. Currently, there are two retired judges, the retired or a former um, police commissioner from Baltimore City. It's about a dozen people, and they are a board that oversees the church's handling of cases of abuse. They meet quarterly and they will review files of, for any allegations that the church had received in the previous quarter. And, and then we'll offer their guidance, opinions on when the church is handling the archbishop, we'll have an opportunity to ask them questions, to get their input and advice. Often it will be on an, about an ongoing matter. They serve a very valuable kind of check and balance role. In 2002, the part of the charter that was developed by the U.S. bishops required all dioceses to have review boards. And then there's a national review board that serves in a similar role for than for the country in terms of the U.S. church. And their makeup evolves over time. They'll serve a certain term. And then as members come off, new members come on. But it's always meant to get the various perspectives that are needed when talking about the kinds of issues that come up in these cases. How many members are there at one given time? It's usually, it ranges, there's no requirement, but it usually ranges and hovers around a dozen or so. You want it to be such that you get the various vantage points represented, but not too large so that it becomes difficult to manage and too many voices. And there's no hard, fast number, but it, it usually hovers around a dozen or so. 
How are they appointed? They're appointed by the archbishop, as with any of our lay or other boards, because we have several other boards that that exist either on issues like there's a school board, for instance. There's a board of financial administration that oversees the church's handling of its finances. All those boards are similar in makeup in that they are mostly lay some non-Catholic representing the relevant and requisite expertise. But at the end of the day, they're all appointed by the archbishop. It's just how things done are in the, how things are done in the church. So do they have to apply for the position or do they just get appointed? They can if they know about it. For instance, since we were most recently public about this board, we've received offers by other people who are interested in it because they because of their backgrounds or just because of their they believe that they're they bring a certain skill set that would be beneficial. I would say the majority of them we seek out just because we're we're looking to put the best and most able people on the board that we can get. And it does require a certain commitment of time. And it's not, these are not easy issues to deal with. But for the most part, we've been very fortunate in getting the generous participation of the people that we've sought for our membership on the board. Can you walk me through what their responsibility is? So typically what they'll do is they'll, they'll receive a packet of information about each of the cases that we're dealing with. And, and then they'll be asked to review them so that when the meeting comes up, that they're in a position to ask questions or to deliberate and discuss details and facts. At the end of the day, the goal is for the church to meet its abilities in terms of making, to handling these cases appropriately and the board would be most interested in making sure that the church is meeting its obligations, not only to the charter, but just in terms of fairness and justly handling these cases as they come in. Yet the diocese takes very seriously its obligation to first report to civil authorities, to seek out other victims, to provide uh, outreach, meaningful outreach to victim survivors, and obviously then to hold uh the individuals involved accountable to the degree that we can. But all of that requires many steps and there are many factors involved behind the scenes. And all of that is available and made privy to the members on the board so that they can appropriately guide and offer their best judgment on how things should be handled. Do they deal strictly with abuse allegations? They do. Most most recently, the Archbishop has asked to expand their roles so that they receive, as opposed to receiving from the diocese, allegations as they pertain to bishops serving in Baltimore. And that was really meant to address some of the concerns that have come out just this past year that were surfaced around Archbishop McCarrick's case, where you had a, a sitting cardinal who had allegations against him. Not only that he abused, but also that he had harassed seminarians and young priests. And and so the, the question was, how can the church rightly be expected to handle allegations against bishops when you have somebody rose to the highest ranks of church who had allegations apparently against him for several years that people must have known about? And so we've expanded the role here of our review board so that they will be the direct recipients of any allegations against a bishop and their instruction is to report to the civil authorities and then report to canonical authorities in terms of the papal nuncio here in in Washington. So when allegations come forward, do they report it to the review board or 
does the church report it to the review board for advising purposes? It depends. If there are allegations against bishops, they would go, those allegations would go directly to, to the review board members. If they are allegations against anyone else, whether it be a priest or a volunteer or a lay employee, those would come into the church, to the diocesan officials. We have a hotline. Of course, people can and do report directly to civil authorities, and we always encourage that in all of our communications. But when we do learn of them first, our first action is to report them to the civil authorities. And then once we're given permission by the civil authorities to take action, then we do so. We, uh, we make a preliminary judgment call and we'll suspend the individual who's been accused. And then we'll go to work on doing a more thorough investigation and then make some kind of a final determination in terms of a permanent action. What we would then do is share any such allegations with the review board. When they meet quarterly, then they'll review what we knew, what we did. And then they'll make some kind of a finding of their own, either in support of or in rare cases, if they find that the church didn't act as it should, then they certainly reserve the right to, to be public in, uh, in airing that, that dissent. And they have done that in the past. Does Maryland law require church, the church personnel to report? Uh, Maryland r- law requires any adult who is, who is aware of a sexual alleg- a, 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 an allegation of sexual abuse by an adult against a child. That's a mandatory reporting law in Maryland. One of the questions I was going to ask you was if the archdiocese had disciplinary action for anyone who didn't report, but it sounds like since it's a legal problem, they would be then held accountable by authorities, right? They are, but that doesn't mean they're not mutually exclusive. In other words, often the allegations that we receive never result in any civil action, never result in the filing of criminal charges, but that doesn't stop us from taking disciplinary action, including termination. And we have done that not only for those who have been credibly accused of committing abuse, but we've also terminated people working for us who knew about it and didn't report it in a timely manner. There's a fine line there because you risk it looking like um, a whistleblower situation where they could claim they fired me because I did report it. When in reality, we, we require immediate reporting, not only to civil authorities, but to us. And if you work for the church or you have any kind of a voluntary role in the church and you knew you suspect abuse was happening and you didn't report it to us immediately, you will be held accountable because it's a really important part of us finding out about it. Because a lot of times what will happen is someone won't, they'll be reluctant, a victim will be reluctant to talk to, well, to, to report it directly, but they'll tell somebody else because as you can imagine, it's a heavy thing to have to carry. And a lot of times someone will just need to talk to someone. And if that someone works for or volunteers with or is representing the church, we expect them to be justly compassionate and understanding and supportive of the person who told them, but they really need to make sure that gets reported because it's a violation and no one can do anything about it until we know about it. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. 
they are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are gonna judge you, right? Of course, they're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof wherever you get your podcasts and follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? As we deep dive into these chilling tales, we all need a moment of escape, a way to unwind without the shadow of the night creeping in. Here's where Recess Mood comes in. Crafted with real fruit and infused with mood-lifting magnesium and stress-balancing aptogens, Recess Mood is your guilt-free retreat. With just 20 calories, no added sugar, it's not just a sparkling water. It's a sanctuary and a can. Imagine unwinding during a gripping episode of Foul Play with a can of strawberry rose, or my favorite, raspberry lemon. Letting the stress melt away without the aftermath of alcohol. It's my little secret to staying balanced in the chaos of a busy life. You deserve a healthier way to unwind, to recharge, and to prepare for the next journey into the unknown. With foul play. And for the devoted foul play listeners, you deserve a healthier way to unwind. Head to takearecess.com slash Shane to get 15% off Recess Mood, your go-to alcohol replacement. Is it common for archdiocese in the United States to have these re- review boards? They're required now. Up until 2002, they were not common, I would say. We, like I said, we had ours starting in 93. As of 2002, all the dioceses in the United States are required to have them. Who required it? The U.S. bishops met in Dallas in 2002. This was when the scope of the sexual abuse crisis in the church was first becoming known through the reporting of the Boston Globe and other media outlets. And so the bishops got together in Dallas and said, up until now, we've allowed diocesan bishops to decide how best to handle these allegations. We need to have, um, we need to standardize the process so that no matter where in the United States abuse occurs, we're not going to leave it up to the bishop to make decisions. We're going to say, this is how it's going to be handled. There's going to be zero tolerance. Nobody who's credibly accused of abuse can maintain a position in the church anymore, even if it's a desk job or something where they have no contact with minors, that it's just too risky and and not going to happen anymore. And then another component of that is the review board, that they want this body in place to review and hold bishops' feet to the fire locally to say there is a document charter that that tells you how to handle these cases. Now we're going to make sure that you're doing it the right way and that you're living up to the letter of the law here. And that's really the role of the review board is to make sure that the bishop is handling allegations in a way that is is dictated by the charter. When I first read the just the title Independent Review Board, I thought, wow, it sounded to me like you guys were seeking a third party review board outside of the archdiocese. But what you're telling me sounds like, although it is not a part of the actual decision making for the to the whoever is at the top is it the archbishop is that who's at the top yes yes so it's more of a they're advising him is that correct yeah obviously there's there there can only be one person making decisions and one person accountable and that is the archbishop and i think it underscores why having this body in place makes it 
far more likely that person in charge is going to do the right thing. And I think not only that, there are a lot of cases that are that involve a lot of gray area that aren't black and white. They're not clear and that require judgment calls. And it's extremely helpful to him. I know he relies on them heavily and has great respect for them because I think he finds it comforting that when making decisions, he has this body that he can use as a sounding board and and as a valued resource so that he feels like he has the best possible advice on which to make decisions. The black and white ones are easy. They're clear and cut, and it's far easier to make judgments. But there are many cases that require judgment calls. And and having people with such experience and wisdom and skills on which to draw it when in making these decisions, I think, is a really valuable asset. The archdiocese, the head guy of the church, he uses the review board to make decisions or to get their opinion. He's also the person that appoints them. But does he have the ability to remove someone? He appoints them. He relies on them not only to review his handling, but also when making decisions. So these are active cases. He'll seek their input. He could If someone doesn't want to serve anymore or if someone isn't showing up to meetings, he could certainly offer to replace them. We, I don't, I can't think of a single instance where an archbishop in Baltimore since 93, when the board came on, has removed somebody for any other reason. It would just be that someone agrees to do it and then realizes they can't really live up to the obligation or needs to be relieved. But that would be the only reason why. Yeah, they meet at the arch, at the archdiocese building. Is that correct? Uh, no, actually, they don't. They meet offsite. Okay. So that it's really the way it's structured, the way they're managed, the way they operate is meant to be as independent as it possibly can be. It's not the archbishop's meeting. He doesn't run it. There is a chair. There, It's their meeting. When they meet, they talk. And then if they have questions for the archbishop or for his staff, they'll answer them. But it truly is their meeting. And they take very, very seriously their role and their responsibility and their independence. I know that a part of the article that was released about the review board mentions the people who are a part of it. Can you walk me through what type of people comprise the review board currently? Yeah, so I think the most, to me, the most notable are the two retired circuit court judges. These these are people who spent their living, a lifetime making judgment calls, cases very similar to the ones that they're hearing now. One of them is a non-Catholic, the other is Catholic. And so they bring a vast array of experience and knowledge and wisdom and independence and, and judicial experience. Another is a former commissioner of police for the Baltimore Police Department. And so you can imagine the, the, his career experience as a police officer, as a detective, as a, the head of a, the police department is going to be someone who has the ability to ask very pointed questions. He'll be able to ask the right questions when, again, when analyzing the facts as they pertain to allegations of abuse, that kind of experience is, is you can't get much better than that. We've had clinical psychologists and educators and heads of school. We've had professionals in human resources, executives. That's the kind of experience that we're looking for who can help guide the church's decision-making and handling, not only when it comes to investigating an allegation, but making the appropriate personnel action, 
but also extending the appropriate pastoral outreach as it pertains to those who've been harmed. That, that requires a, a pretty broad skill set and having professionals lend their wisdom and expertise is a really valued asset to the church. And we're very fortunate to have that. Is there any requirement for the church to report the allegations to the review board? The charter requires there be a review board to review its handling. So, you know, what, how specific the language is, I would say it's really impossible for them to do their job if they don't have all the information. And so it's certainly implicit if it's not explicit. But my read on that is yes, the, the review board exists, have information on all the cases and for them to appropriately guide, they need the information to, to do that. And we make a very concerted effort to make sure that they have access to not only what we have access to, but to put ourselves at their disposal in terms of answering questions and being available to them so that they can offer their best wisdom. Other than going against the charter, there isn't any requirement. For example, you guys wouldn't be held in any type of law encounter if a case wasn't reported to the board. It's just all internal. Yeah, the right? board is an internal mechanism. There's no state or federal law that requires the church or any other institution to have a body like that. The expectation from a legal standpoint is that if you suspect somebody was abused as a child, that you report it to the police. And that's a reasonable expectation and we certainly take very seriously. But there are how we use our board, we set the board up ourselves, we created the board. That's completely an internal process. Earlier, we talked about how the, there, there's law that requires everyone, every adult to report. Can you tell me, you mentioned slightly about how, although civil actions may not be taken against uh, someone who has accusations against them, the archdiocese may give their own disciplinary action. Can you kind of walk me through what that might look like? So typically when we receive an allegation, it's about something that happened decades ago. It may or may not have even been technically a crime by definition at the time because criminal law has evolved. So depending upon the ages of individuals or what was alleged to have occurred, the police may determine that it's not worth their efforts to pursue it. And so often... The allegations that we received are never pursued by the civil authorities. We still report them both verbally and in writing, and we wait for them to tell us whether or not it's okay for us to begin our own investigation because we don't want to get out ahead of them. There are cases where they will pursue it. And if we are out talking to people before they are, it hinders their investigation. We don't want to do anything to compromise that. So once we get the go ahead from them, then we pursue it. And if we determine that it happened, then we take appropriate action. If all we did was say, we'll just follow the police. And if the police say it happened, then we'll take action. That wouldn't work because there would, there'd be hardly ever an instance when we would discipline somebody. Instead, we, you know, we take a posture of, unless we have reason to rule it out, we consider that it was plausible and that it did occur. Even if it's only one allegation, we don't necessarily need to substantiate it through another incident because sometimes there are only, there is only one incident. I would view it as two parallel processes, one being the civil process, the police, and the other being the church process. And so we will, if we believe it has happened, then it's a one strike and you're out. The person is removed from ministry. 
and can never again be conserved in any capacity the church again. And that's really one of the, the hard lessons of the crisis from over the years. It's just this understanding that it's too risky. Someone who would harm a child sexually, is it's too risky to ever trust that won't happen again. And so the church can't put itself or put children in, 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 the, in a position of potentially being harmed again. Can you tell me what the Bishop Accountability List is? There's a, if we're talking about the same thing, there's the, in nine, in 2002, the Archdiocese of Baltimore was the second diocese, we believe anywhere in the world to, um, proactively published a list of names of any clergy who had been incredibly accused of abuse dating back to the 1940s. Since 2002, if we've learned of an allegation, we've added that person's name to the list and we've put that on our website and continued to update it with information as it becomes available so that there is a public database, if you will, for people to know that someone has been incredibly accused of committing child sexual abuse. Anyone on that list if they were alive, is permanently barred from any kind of ministry in the church. And that is part of the zero tolerance policy that that we have and have long had. That is just what it means. It says it's one strike and you're out. If we believe it happened, you can't ever again serve in the church because we can't risk another child being harmed by that individual. So it's actively, it actively is updated with is. Yep. anyone that is accused? Yep. For example, when the Pennsylvania grand jury report came out, they had a list of names of clerics and we combed through the whole report to see if there was any connection to Baltimore. And if there was, and that person had not previously been on our list, then we added them to that list. And we do that anytime we find out about somebody who's got a connection to the Archdiocese of Baltimore. If there's a credible allegation out there, we want to make sure that their name appears on that list. And that we know that we can take appropriate action if the individual still has any connection to Baltimore and to make sure that it's been reported to civil authorities and to also see if there are other victims out there. When they're added to the list, are they still considered a priest at that point? They are. It's a kind of a distinction that warrants a little bit of explanation, but th- their priestly faculties are removed and they can no longer present themselves publicly as a priest. Are they a priest? Uh, they are until the Vatican says they're not. In other words, there is a formal canonical process called laicization where um, the case is sent from the diocese to Rome, and Rome has basically a court hearing where they determine if they are going to return the individual to the lay state, which means if that when they're ordained a priest, if that if they're elevated to the clerical state, this would be the reverse of that process. So they would no longer be a priest in anyone's eyes. But for all intents and purposes, when you're when an allegation is proved to be credible here or anywhere, at that point, for all intents and purposes, you stop functioning as a priest. You can no longer dress as a priest. You can no longer celebrate the sacraments publicly. You can't refer to yourself as father. You can't in any way function as a priest, even if you are technically a priest until the Vatican weighs in from a practical standpoint, priest, your priestly ministry is effectively over once that allegation is determined incredible. Can you tell me what the difference is between, um, being defrocked and having their faculties removed? Yeah, so the defrocked is a kind of a lay term. It's a, it's another way of referring to laicization, that, that process I just talked about where the Vatican, once they've heard 
the facts of a case will say to a priest, you're no longer a priest, you're now just a layperson. That's the same as defrocking. Having your faculties removed is what the local bishop can do once he receives a credible allegation. And so well, that's what we do. Anytime we receive one and it's against a priest, if we say, yes, we believe this happened, that person's faculties are removed. They can no longer function as a priest in that diocese or any other diocese. So when they have either of those added onto them, of course, they're not added to a sexual offenders list. Is that correct? No, only well, civil authorities can do that. So we report everything and whatever action they're going to take, whether it include prosecution or adding a name to a registry, that can only be done by the civil authorities. The extent of the diocesan bishop's authority is to remove them and remove their faculties. He can't take any more action disciplinary-wise than that. And whether or not the individual is no longer a priest, only the Vatican can do that. So those are three forms of disciplinary action, and each kind of has its own authority figure. Gotcha. One of the, I don't want to call it a perk, but for the for a lack of a better term, a perk of someone being added to a registry is what we are able to see where those abusers live. So my question would be, if they're not added to the registry, how does the archdiocese keep track of where they're living? We don't, and there's no way for us to. The best that we can do, and it's one of the reasons we maintain the list we do, is that is by making their name public and making it consistently available in a public way, people can at least see the individual's name. Um, We don't have the ability, nor do we want to set the expectation that we can reasonably track the whereabouts of individuals who no longer work for us. And so if I work for Home Depot and I'm fired, I don't think anyone expects Home Depot to be able to tell a customer where that individual lives all the time, forever, until they die. And so a bishop's canonical authority ends when that individual no longer works for him. He doesn't have the ability to say, I have to know where you're going to live at all times from, from now on, because frankly, they have to begin a new life. If they're not in jail and they're not prosecuted and their life up until this point has been in service to the church as a priest, they probably don't have much by way of a skill set and they have to begin again. And so they, they're off, whether it's in the same area or another state or wherever they have to find a way to support themselves. If the civil authorities say, I understand Bishop, while you're going to suspend this person, no longer going to work for you, but what he did doesn't constitute a crime or doesn't rise to the level of him going on a sex abuse registry. We can't force them to do that. There has to be, they have a legal criteria that that, I, that the individuals have to meet before they can add them to such a list. Well, I certainly understand, and as a father, would certainly want to know where someone, if somebody who had sexually abused a child at some point was living near me or in my neighborhood, um, short of pursuing a change to the way the law views that, there's not a whole lot I can do. And I certainly don't expect a former employer to be the ones responsible for that. Do accused priests still receive benefits? They receive benefits up until the point that the church, the, the Vatican laicizes them or defrocks them. 
And so the canonical law requires the diocesan bishop to continue to support at some level a priest until which time the, the Vatican says he's no longer a priest. Do you know how many priests who are on the accountability list, do you know how many of them did go to jail for it? I don't. I know there have been instances where priests went to jail. The vast majority of the men on that list would have been accused years after the abuse occurred. And because of that, it made prosecution very difficult. Although I think it's important to note that while there is a statute of limitations for felony convictions in some states, there is not in Maryland. There's no statute of limitation on the prosecution of someone who's committed a felony crime. And so the kinds of abuse that we're talking about, especially the cases of actual sexual abuse in the state of Maryland, that's considered a felony. And so you can be prosecuted up to the day you die, no matter how long ago the abuse occurred. And so I think that's the reason why in many cases you don't see these things prosecuted because the nature of their crimes, their victim survivors are are less likely to come forward um, early on and typically will not do so until many years later and into adulthood. And because of that, many of these crimes never result in criminal convictions. I've noticed from some of the names on the Bishop accountability list that some of them are living in communities, community facilities and things like that. From hearing the process that's in place, it's troubling to me from a personal standpoint just to know that these priests are removed and they still get they get sent away and there is a, a registry so we don't know where they're at. So they're living in these communities. Knowing how sex offenders work, that does very troubling to me. No, like I said, I think it's certainly understandable. There's just not a mechanism in place where we can reasonably track these men who, once they leave our employment, are they're free to live where they want to live. We have no say over that. They're required to get a stipend. What they do with that money, whether it's to support their own housing, that's we can't dictate. If their crimes rose to the level of needing to be on a registry, the civil authorities would put them on a registry. I think it's worthy of a larger conversation as to what must happen for people to be on that registry, what the criteria is, who should be on it. Again, as a father of three daughters, I certainly support the concept of a registry, understanding that even that has problems. People are supposed to be on it, living in one address, and the next thing you know, you look up and the person hasn't lived there for a long time. And so it's only as good as the information that drives it. But I certainly support the concept. And there's no no one here who thinks, you know, that these men should be living among people if they're deemed a threat to society. It's just outside of our purview or ability to to manage it otherwise. Could the arch and I don't know, this is more of a question on if the legality of it, but If a priest is added to the list and you guys deem them as a credible charge towards them, they're not defrocked, so they still receive benefits, could you guys require them to give you their address? Could we? Oh, yeah. We have their address. We would have to have it in order to send them their financial assistance. The problem is that to, and there are legal issues, there's privacy issues, there's Again, I think we forget that the church is an employer. It's an institution, but it's an employer, not unlike any other employer in the country or in the world for that matter, where like it or not, 
the people who work for us have a right to privacy. They have certain rights that we can't simply ignore or disavow because of the nature of their crimes. We send these cases to Rome. We support efforts to have these men laicized because we think that's best for everybody. But at the end of the day, we can't ignore the laws that exist, even though they protect people who've done bad things. It's really unfortunate because from an outsider standpoint, and of course I mentioned that I don't understand a lot of about what Catholic the Catholic system does, but it sounds like it, it's just a weird position for me to hear how that system works. That you guys see that these priests are looking at it this way: if you had the public school system has a far greater rate of child sexual abuse in it, is there an expectation that the public school system have a database of every teacher that's been fired for? sexually abusing too. I went to a public school and I didn't see my teachers as priests. So I know that. But they were authority figures and they were employees. Oh, I agree. They were employees. And so your question is, should the employer, should the former employer be responsible for informing the community of the whereabouts of men who committed abuse of various degrees? And that can range from kissing and fondling to outright abuse as we all come to think of it, rape, sodomy. And what is the church's capacity to monitor that, to continue to keep that database updated as people come and go? They don't always tell us. They don't always take advantage of their modest financial assistance that the church is required to pay. Us telling you it's safe to live here because our last knowledge of this person's whereabouts was there. When in fact, that person has since moved, it's fraught with complications and difficulties. That's not our expertise. It's not what we're about. It's not, we're not a law enforcement agency. We're not an IT company. It's outside of our purview. And so I think we've been our best efforts to be transparent and to keep the community at large abreast of what we know is to publish a list that we're still in the vast minority of having such a list and to keeping it updated and to keeping it public. And I think our focus is there. And that really is the best we can do at this moment. This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.